Hello, everyone, and welcome to Diversity Matters, where we explore all things diversity, equity, and inclusion related. I'm your host, Oscar Holmes IV, and I'm so excited to welcome an amazing academic and corporate executive, Dr. Anthony C. Hood, to the guest chair today as we talk about corporate DEI initiatives. An electrical engineer by training, Dr. Hood enjoyed a 10-year career with Bell South and AT&T before returning to school full-time to earn his PhD in management at the University of Alabama, Roll Tide. After several years serving as the Director of Civic Innovation in the Office of the President at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, as well as a tenured Associate Professor of Management in the Collette School of Business, Dr. Hood left academia and returned to corporate America. Currently, he serves as an Executive Vice President and Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer for First Horizon Bank, where he provides strategic leadership and executive oversight for the corporation's enterprise-wide DEI strategy. Dr. Hood, welcome to Diversity Matters. Thank you for having me, Dr. Holmes. We'll be back after a quick word from our sponsors. Where there's a dream, there's a way. Where there's a win, there's a way. Where there's a spark, a smile, a need, a future, a will, there's a way. Wherever our clients and communities want to go, whatever they are inspired to achieve. First Horizon is ready to help. Let's find a way. First Horizon Bank, member FDIC. Guess that's one of my A1s from day one, as I have been blessed to call Dr. Hood a dear friend since 2008, as we both started our PhD programs and became members of the PhD project the same year. As fate would have it, I ended up leaving the PhD program I was in and joining Anthony and several other members of our PhD project family in the management program at the University of Alabama. And I swear to you that it not only was one of the best career moves that I made, but I also had the best time of my life being in the same program with all of my amazing PhD project family. Dr. Hood, words can express how proud I am of all that you've accomplished and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Likewise, Dr. Holmes, you've been a really good friend, a brother, colleague. So glad to be on your podcast. Great. So, Anthony, let's get started. So, as I mentioned in the first intro, you know, you have an interesting career journey. Like many of us, you worked in corporate America before, and then you went back to school to get a PhD to become a business school professor. But unlike most of us, after getting tenure, and working in some administrative roles, you left academia and went back to corporate America. We don't see that often in our field, going back to right. corporate America like that. <laughs> Can you explain why and how you made that transition? Yeah, it was interesting. When I went to some of my faculty colleagues when I was considering the move, they was like, dude, nobody gives up a tenure faculty role. Like, this is why you work so hard to get tenure. You got a job for life. But, you know, I did in some ways, I missed the speed of the game, as you will, you know, when I was in corporate America. So I did miss that. But really, I mean, honestly, I was really happy doing what I was doing at UAB. But just this opportunity just presented itself. I had a friend of mine who was associated with First Horizon Bank, and he mentioned that they were looking for a chief diversity officer. And he was like, dude, I know you're not a chief diversity officer right now, but the work that you're doing at UAB feels much like a chief diversity officer. So he just asked, would it be okay if he connected me with the CHRO at First Horizon just to have a conversation? And I was like, sure. I really didn't think much of it. But that first conversation was an amazing conversation. 
Then she said, hey, do you mind if I connect you to a couple of other people at the company? And I would say, man, in over the course of maybe like two or three weeks, I ended up having Zoom calls with most of the members of the executive management team. Next thing you know, they were inviting me to come to Memphis to sit down and meet with the CEO. And I mean, it really, really moved fast. And next thing I know, they were making me an offer. I was in the middle of a semester, as a matter of fact. I actually started my job on November 2nd, 2020. And but UAB and first round, we did work it out where I could finish out the semester before I officially started the role. Excellent. excellent. So that explains why the CDO role, if it hadn't unfolded the way it unfolded, would there have been other corporate executive roles that you would have considered moving into? Or again, was this just simply something that you weren't contemplating at the time and just the opportunity presented yourself to go into corporate America? What I was really focused on is certainly equity. Equity is always something that's incredibly important to me. Equity, justice, fairness, and inclusion. A lot of my research was in that area and a lot of the work I was doing in the president's office at UAB was in that area. And then strategy. How do you develop KPIs, metrics, goals, and visions to make sure that we're making progress and that it's not performative, which we'll probably talk a little bit more about in this conversation. But for me, whatever industry, whatever company through which I could do that work, then that was open to me. And I was open to maybe continue to do that at UAB. Actually, I was thinking maybe doing that at another university. It just happened to be a corporation that presented the opportunity to me. You mentioned you started a role in November 2020. As we know, the CDO role exploded after the tragic death of George Floyd in that same year. And, you know, many people, rightfully so, started claiming that a lot of this activity in corporate America was just performative, as you mentioned a bit earlier. And so what's your take on this corporate level performativity? And how have you made sure that, you know, what you do at First Arise wasn't just performative in nature? I don't think a lot of places are intentionally trying to make it performative. I just think the roles are just ill-structured. They're just so new that companies just figure, oh, well, we need one of these people. And then they treat them like they're different from every other business unit and every other executive in the company. And they should not be treated differently. You know, so the chief diversity officer should have staff. They should have budget. They should have executive oversight. They should be able to hold people accountable. They should be able to report to the CEO. Like all these other things that you have with the CFO and CFO, CHRO, all the other members of the executive team, chief diversity officers should be like that. I think, unfortunately, what we see at companies is they say, oh, we have a need for this, so we're just going to create a position in HR and call them a chief diversity officer. But really, they're just really like a director of diversity recruiting. That's not a good thing for anybody involved. So for me, I was coming from a position of strength. I was not looking for a job. I already had a job, a tenured role. I was very happy where I was. And so I was very clear when I was going through my interview process. If you're looking for somebody to just do diversity recruiting or to put on History Month panel discussions, Women's History Month, Black History Month, I'm not your guy. Go find somebody else. I said, but if you're really interested in making an impact and driving change, then I'm definitely interested. And so I laid out my non-negotiables. So my non-negotiables were, I wanted the role to be comprehensive and not just an HR-focused role. And I think a lot of times the companies that come off being performative, that CDO is reporting into the human resources function. That's where they're pigeonholed. But you got to think about all of the things where DEI shows up in an organization. You think about who gives vendor contracts with the organization. 
how does DEI show up there? When you think about marketing, how the brand shows up, who we market it to, we think about technology, we think about all these other things. When you think about the sales team, who we're selling to, all those things need to have DEI embedded into them and particularly into those business unit strategies. So part of my non-negotiables were this position needs to be a strategy position. And so for me, I want to be able to review all the other business unit strategies that are led by the other executive members of the team, but then look at those strategies through a DEI lens and then see how might we embed DEI into those strategies. Because if you embed DEI into those strategies across the enterprise, now you can tie them to the key performance indicators, the metrics, the tactics, and the holy grail, I think, for DEI work is how do we then tie that to how people are evaluated quarterly, annually, and then ultimately, how does that impact compensation? And I think once you get to that place, then you're in a position to have a fully mature DEI strategy for the organization. I would say most companies are not there, but that's where you need to be because when you think about all the other aspects of the company, if you don't sell, it's going to impact your evaluation. And if you don't sell enough widgets, it's going to impact your compensation. And if you continue to underperform, then we either need to put you on a performance development plan or we need to find you a job somewhere else, either in the company or somewhere else. DEI really needs to be looked at in the same way. It has to have that level of accountability. So those were some of the things that I talked about going through my interview process. And I really didn't get pushback from anybody. They was like, yes, that sounds like the direction that we need to go. I will also say this about my company. I was not our first chief diversity officer. We had had a previous chief diversity officer that just happened to leave at the beginning of 2020, even prior to the murder of George Floyd. So they already had, you know, a track record of DEI. So I was able to just come along and take what they had done and then amplify it. Great. That's a great roadmap and I think some great advice for organizations to be able to use and implement as they think about their roles. But I want to ask perhaps some revealing questions here because when we think about corporate executives, right, particularly at the C-suite, one of the attractive things about those roles is the level of autonomy and decision-making authority that people have in those roles. And so I imagine it's a very delicate balance when you have another corporate executive coming in to a team and perhaps suggesting, maybe strongly encouraging, <laughs> right? <laughs> or even as you say, reviewing strategies of other areas. And so what advice can you give chief diversity officers who may be set up appropriately as you are in this case, but you have to work with other, again, colleagues who are respected in their functional roles who are experts in their roles as well, and being able to collaborate with them so that you can infuse DEI in their business strategies without them taken aback by saying, like, who are you to, you know, come into <laughs> my area to try to say, you know, better than me. So can you get some advice to us about how you do that successfully? That's a good point. So I'm in a position now where I'm starting to mentor other new chief diversity officers. And I'm telling them, like, the way you start is the way you finish. And if you don't start right, it's going to be very difficult for you. So I think one of the keys is you have to have the buy-in of everybody, but particularly the board of directors, particularly if you are a publicly traded company, if it's a university, board of trustees, or what have you, you need to have their buy-in, and then you also need to have the buy-in of the CEO. If you don't have that, it's going to be very difficult for you because it's so easy for everybody else to just brush you off like, man, get out of here. Ain't nobody fooling with that stuff. But if this is important to the board of directors, 
they're going to ask for you several times a year to come before them and give an update on where the company is, who's making progress and who's not making progress. That provides an extra layer of accountability. And then if the board of directors cares about it, they're going to make sure that the CEO cares about it. And if the CEO cares about it, and then if it's part of how the CEO is evaluated by the board, then all that trickles down downstream. And so now the CEO is going to make sure that his or her direct reports also have that embedded into how they're evaluated. And then he or she needs to make sure that when they're having their regular meetings, help me understand what we're doing in procurement around supplier diversity. So it's less about what I'm doing, but it's more about the CEO. And if the chief diversity officer is having unimpeded access to the CEO and providing updates to the CEO and has a psychologically safe environment where I can say, hey, Stephanie, I'm really having some issues with John. I've talked to John. I feel John's saying all the right things, but John is really not trying to do this work. And then Stephanie says, thank you for letting me know. I'll have a conversation with that person. It's a different conversation when it's coming from the CEO versus when it's coming from me. So I say that. Two, when I first came in, I tried to create a safe environment where people felt psychologically safe with me and they understood why I'm there. I was not there to be the compliance police for DEI. I am here to be your partner. I'm here to be a resource and a sounding board to you. Everything that I do, and you'll appreciate this coming from our training, everything I do has to be data-driven and evidence-based. So I am presenting to them the data. I'm presenting to them peer-reviewed research and best practices not only from the academic literature, but also from McKinsey, Deloitte, Gartner, all these other places, stuff that our colleague Stephanie Creary is doing at Ward and things like that. I'm presenting them these things to say, hey, this is what other companies are doing. This is a best practice. This is something that we could benefit from if we do this in the company. And so once you present that to them and it's how you present it to them, then they say, oh, okay, I get that. And then you have to make sure that they understand if we do this, this is how it's going to make your job better. It's going to help you achieve your goals faster or more efficiently than you would have otherwise. So that's the approach that I've taken. And for the most part, it has really worked out well. I like that. I want us to spend some time on some of these best practices or better practices, however we define them. Emerging practices. Right, right. <laughs> it sounds good. And we hope to always have a positive outcome, but we know doing this work that everything is in peaches and cream, right? And roses. There's some challenges along with doing this work. And so talk about what may have been some of the most challenging DEI initiatives that you have worked on and what are some of the lessons that you've learned on working on those challenging DEI initiatives? I'll say a couple of things. One, so I'm in the banking industry and in the banking industry, we just have some unique elements of our industry and in my company in particular. So when I came into the company, we were going through a merger with another company. And so when you're going through a merger, and these mergers sometimes take years, oftentimes you're going through a merger, there's so many priorities, so many moving pieces that go around. People will acknowledge that things like DEI are important, but they just say, that's important, Anthony, but we got like 12 other things that are priorities as well. So in that instance, things like DEI and, and not just DEI, but other things as well, they get pushed down the priority list. Or say, for instance, you're going through like, hey, we're moving to a new system. So there may be things that I want to get done. I know it's a best practice. And they may say, well, Anthony, we can't do that now because let's do that on the other side of systems integration. System integration may be eight months from now. So do we just not work on this for eight months? So those are some of the things that's challenging as it relates to 
how do we make sure that DEI is top of mind? And then how do I move that up the priority list? And I'm not saying that the other things are not priorities, but in my industry and other industries, we can have these types of environmental shocks every year for the next 20 years. And that's how you get into a place where DEI keeps getting kicked. The can gets kicked down the road. So that's, I think that's been the challenging thing for me is coming into an organization that was going through a merger. And as soon as we finished our existing merger in February, 2020, a couple of days later, we announced that we were being acquired by another bank. So now the cycle starts all over again. Well, now that we're being acquired, do we need to do these things? Is that in our best interest? Is this the highest and best use of our resources? Because resources are not finite. And I get that. So if resources are not finite, then there's some people might feel compelled to be like, well, let's just wait until we get on the other side of that. And I think that's where a lot of the frustration comes in with a lot of corporate initiatives. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it's important for people to realize that you have some wins in this field, but there may be some losses in this field. And you really have to have a mindset in which you can understand, one, how to be a champion to perhaps restructure their prioritization in companies, but also have the resilience to be able to get up the next day and continue to fight the good fight and push on. And I will say this also, Oscar, you know, so I also sit on the company's operating committee and the operating committee is like the top 30 executives of the company we meet on a regular basis. Because I have a prior background in corporate America and sitting on the operating committee, you know, I take feverish notes, right? And I listen to how everybody else presents information in these meetings. When the finance person presents or our chief economist presents, whatever, I look at their graphs and their, how they frame the priorities that, when they're asking for support on things like that. And I realize if I need to enhance the importance of what I need to present it, particularly in a financial way, so that they understand how this is tied to the business case, how this is either going to help us drive top line revenue, it's going to help us reduce expenses or make us more efficient or retain our talent or what have you like that. So that's one thing that's been very helpful for me is speaking the language in a way, in a dialect in which they are accustomed to hearing it. And the more I learn to do that and reframe my presentations, I've gotten a lot more traction in the things that I need to get done. And for the most part, I'm mentioning all these potential barriers, but for the most part, I'm able to get done the things I need to get done. And like you mentioned, sometimes you have wins, sometimes you losses. Sometimes it's not a loss. Sometimes it's just a delayed win. I really wanted it last quarter, but even if it takes to the next quarter, at least I got it done. It just took longer to get it done, but at least it got done. Thank you for explaining that. And so I want us to talk about metrics, DI metrics, because you brought that up earlier. And even along this conversation, you have been talking a lot about this business case for diversity. And there are critics of the business case of <laughs> diversity. <laughs> I myself is one of those critics. But we'll stay along that line of thinking right now, because I do think DEI metrics are important, but I just want to hear you explain why do you think that they are important and where should organizations focus their attentions on DEI metrics? So to me, as a trained research and scientist, a lot of DEI work is like hypothesis testing, right? Like I might think that this IV is related to this DV, but at the end of the day, it's an empirical question. Let's collect the data, let's analyze and see what the data tell us. It's the same way with things, let's say hiring, for instance. I might come in and say, hey, guys, I think we got an issue with hiring. Oftentimes, you have a different opinion. Somebody say, I don't think that we have an issue with hiring. That's just an opinion, right? It's a hypothesis. But when I actually show you the data and show what are the demographics of the people who applied to these positions over the past 12 months, and of those that applied, who actually got screened? 
And of those that got screened, who got an interview, and of those that got interviewed, or the demographics who we actually hired. That's the data that I'm talking about. And once you lay that out, you can't unsee it. And so a lot of times, you know, once I start analyzing, we, in my company, we had not been analyzing our hiring pipeline in that way. Once we start analyzing it, and now I can present it to a leader, now it's not an emotional conversation. The data are what they are. The philosopher Sean Carter says, men lie, women lie, but numbers never lie, right? Okay, you might not like what the data say, but the data are what they are. And if you don't like these data, then perhaps you have some other data that we need to talk about. And I invite you to do that. But if not, if you don't have any data, I encourage you to go with the data that I have. And the data that I show is that percentage of people who applied to the position were women, but this percentage of folks that were hired were actually women. And if there's a disparity or inequity, now help us understand what's the inequity. Are women just not presenting themselves well in the interview process? Or is there something else going on that the rate of women that are hired to apply is different? Same with pay equity. If I say, well, how are we with pay equity? And you just say, oh, we don't have any issues with it. That's really not the question or the answer. We don't have any issues. The thing is, what do the data say? Because we know generally women get paid a certain percentage less on the dollar than men. So what is our number in our company? And then how do we benchmark that against our peers in this industry, as well as other companies outside the industry. So that's a perspective I take. And for me, that reduces, it makes it less emotional when I'm having a conversation, particularly those difficult conversations where in my gut, I might know that, hey, there's an opportunity here, but I lead with the data. And not only will I lead with the data, I'm also going to lead with the evidence-based best practice on we've identified a gap, and now this is what we can do as a solution in order to resolve that gap. Thank you. And just to be clear, what I mean by being a criticizer of the business case for diversity, I really mean it from the sense of the limitations, right, of how we really should just see people as basically like pawns in this cog to make some above average return, right? People are people first. And, you know, there are things that we should do with organizations, even if they do not produce, quote unquote, this positive like financial benefit. Um, an organization. So that's one of my main critiques of the business case of diversity and why many of us in the field are moving away from just relying, right, on that business case of diversity. So, for example, if I give an example of some of the research in our field on race matching that my own dissertation chair, Dr. Derek Avery, and colleagues have published, they found that there is some positive outcomes on race matching, which is where organizations try to match their employee demographic base with their clientele. And but there's also real challenges and real issues of equity when we do that. Right. So if we take for an industry, say, for example, real estate. Right. And you're trying to match your real estate agents with the demographics. It doesn't take a rocket science to figure out, OK, well, which real estate agent is going to get the highest commissions. Right. Because if you match a white real estate agents with white clientele, typically they are going to buy in neighborhoods where the houses are just valued higher based on the color of their skin because whiteness has this imbued worth that's much higher than other races, there is a real problem when we think about those type of things, even though the research literature would tell us that's a really positive outcome and organizations could benefit from that. And so that's just, again, a real life example of how we need to take our research literature and the outcomes we find in the literature, but also view it in a very nuanced, complex way to understand what are the implications for organizations and how we may need to rethink some of these things, because it's clear, I guess, I think from that example where we don't want to stifle 
people of color in areas in which it's not going to give them the biggest financial return. But also it limits the level of skill building that other people can obtain if they're only stuck with just operating with people within their own demographic groups, because that's a missed opportunity for them as well. I hope that clears it up for our listeners who may have been thinking about like, oh, I wonder what Oscar is thinking about that. Why, why does he critique the business case for diversity? And you know, the other thing that I want to tap on, because I think it's related to some of the things that we're seeing, just like what's going on in our country with the attacks against like DEI, CRT and wokeness and all this other kind of stuff. What I observe is that the people who are anti-DEI, it doesn't feel like they're actually anti-DEI. They're just anti-race. Because for some people, DEI means Black folks. And I'm very clear about when I'm talking about DEI at my company and the work that we're doing, when I'm talking to our associates and our leaders, I'm talking about all the other things that we focus on. We talk about the experience for our veteran associates and our veteran clients. We're talking about people of different genders. We're talking about sexual orientation. We're talking about caregivers. We're talking about different races, not just Black folks, but Asian, Hispanic. We're talking about persons with disabilities, both physical disabilities as well as invisible disabilities. So when people are trying to throw out DEI because they really don't want to do anything that provides equity for Black folks, I'm like, just think about what you're doing because it is about race, but it's about so much more than that. It's about how do we create an equitable and inclusive environment for all of our colleagues, for all of our communities, and for all of our clients. And of course, intersectionality is a huge part of that. And so everything that we do in my company, I'm not just breaking it down by race over here, gender over here, disability over here. I'm looking at, okay, let's look at the hiring pipeline for women that are of different colors that also have disabilities that may also have prior military service. And so when you look at it holistically like that, I think it helps people understand better what it is that we're really trying to accomplish. And it gets away from, like you were saying, like the race matching and things like that, because that can really take you down a path to, to your point that it makes it too easy for people to be dismissive of our efforts. Thank you for elaborating on that. And I thank you for pointing out a very clear issue that we can see in corporate America, which is why it should be named. There is specific anti-Black racism that exists in corporate America. And so whereas many people are supportive of other identities under the DEI umbrella, many times they are reacting and they are basically confronting and challenging DEI initiatives really under the guise of anti-Black racism. And that is something that corporate America really needs to take on and really needs to have a holistic, systematic way to grapple with the depth of anti-Black racism in corporate America. And I don't think many corporations are actually ready to have that conversation and, and are even doing the work. Just previously in this season alone, I talked with Dr. Kevin Nadal about microaggressions and then Dr. Victor Ray about critical race theory just last week. And I think as we look at our political environment and again, how corporations feed into that environment, that is a conversation, Dr. Hood, that people are skirting over and they are not really having that conversation about anti-Black racism. And so as a CDO, how do we get leaders to not only, again, just have the conversation, but really address 
anti-Black racism, because that's an entirely different issue. And we know, again, when we address anti-Black racism, all of the other identities, right, get better. Those things get addressed. We look at more equitable solutions and outcomes for many different identity groups. So it's not an either-or proposition. It's not a zero-sum proposition, right? But this, just by the history of this country, and even in this world to an extent, the level of hatred and disdain really puts up barriers that a lot of people, a lot of talented executives are unable to surpass when they are in these roles. Absolutely. You know, for me, I just put my focus on what I can control and what I have found to be helpful is I'm really just building a coalition amongst everybody in my company, regardless of their identity group, but particularly creating an equitable environment, regardless of your gender, orientation, veteran status, ability, all that. And I think everybody's pushing in the same direction to say, if it's not equitable for one, it's not equitable for any of us. And I think once you build that broad coalition, it's been helpful for where we are in our journey at my company. I can't really speak for other companies, right. but it's been helpful at our organization. Good. I'm glad to hear that. And knowing you, I know why you are more effective, perhaps, than some other people who may be in that same role in, in other companies. And so as we think about the work that you do as a chief diversity officer, and, you know, again, we talked about before, some things don't always work out. What would you say would be some of your best lessons learned of things that perhaps didn't work out? for you and you're just like, oh, that was a good lesson for me. You know, I thought <laughs> that was going to happen and, you know, it didn't work out that way. That's a good one. I'm not going to say everything has worked out. I think building my team, I've had some, for the most part, it's been great. You know, I've had some folks that I've hired that didn't work out. And then I have some people that have worked out amazingly and they've gotten promotions and gone to other places. One of my first employees that I had when I came onto the company she got a, a job as a chief diversity officer at a tech startup. I hated to lose her, but I mean, that's an amazing opportunity for her. And I've had somebody else that got a promotion and went to another bank. So what I had to realize is that oftentimes leaders will hoard talent and sometimes they're nefarious with it. Like they want to hoard them so much that they will sabotage, you know, their mobility chances just so they can hold on to them. And what I realized is that the best I can do, if I'm really building talent and I'm investing in them, they're going to get opportunities elsewhere. So I need to create the flexibility such that I'm always thinking about how do I replenish my team if and when that person gets an opportunity somewhere else because they're knocking it out of the park. And so that's been a real learning lesson for me. And that means that I have to document everything that I do and I have to have redundancy such that if somebody moves on, it doesn't cripple the team because I've lost one of my key team members. I totally agree with that. As a leader myself, I've been in that same predicament of one, for me, one of the success indicators is how I develop my team members, right? And so professional development is constantly being talked about it. And again, they're great people who don't want to lose them. But at the same time, it may be an issue if nobody wants your people. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so it's really refreshing to hear leaders, corporate leaders talk about the positivity of succession planning as well as, you know, development for their team members. Yeah, I talk to my team members all the time, like, so what do y'all want to do next? Where do you want to be in the next 18 months and how can I help you to get there? Good. So let's talk about you specifically in that vein, because you talked about the mergers and acquisitions for your company. And so what's on the horizon for Dr. Hood? What do you want to do? 
next. If you can share any of those details with us. <laughs> I'm open. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never thought that I was going to leave the phone company, to be honest with you. And when I told people I was leaving to go back and get my PhD, they was like, are you crazy? Like, nobody leaves a phone company. And then when I left UAB, people thought I was crazy to leave UAB. But I'm just kind of open to where God leads me and what opportunities present themselves. I'm a realist as it relates to where we are right now because our company is being acquired. And there's always redundancy at the top of the house when two companies merge or a company is being acquired. So I fully expect that on the other side, I might be presented with an opportunity to do something different than what I'm doing right now. And so I'll just have to look at that and see if that's something that I want to do. That's totally respectable. And I appreciate you sharing that. But also, you know, I think your story in itself It's so good for all of our listeners to think about, particularly those of us in academia, is to not be risk adverse all the time. And again, if I think about people in our cohort, our PhD cohort, or even those who may have come before us, we've taken so many different pathways and there have been so many, not to say mentoring is bad or or giving advice is bad, because we could benefit definitely from a good mentoring and great advice. But there is something to say about forging a new path every now and then, right? And so I have seen some great examples, you included, of people who have forged new paths and have been really successful in those paths and open up new possibilities and new opportunities and being new role models for all of us. So I thank you for doing that as well. We're going to come to a close, but I want to give you time and space to also talk about the great community work that you do, because beside being a great academic, being a great corporate executives, those who know you know that you are a great community leader and you are deeply involved and entrenched. And I'll just call it broadly DEI activity in the Birmingham area and really within the entire state of Alabama and beyond. And so I want to ask you what types of community DNI initiatives that you are most involved in and any advice that you like to share with our listeners about how they can take those skills that they have and pivot those to help the community as well. Absolutely. So early in my career, Oscar, I felt like I was all over the place. You know, I was doing stuff in my job over here and then nonprofits over here. And so what I realized I had to be a lot more focused in how I spend my time and my energy. So right now, I think everything that I do is focused on the role of equity. And one of the core values at our company at First Horizon Bank is elevating equity. And that's kind of how I see all of my personal and professional work. So, of course, I'm working on elevating equity at First Horizon through the work I'm doing there. But I'm also still working on elevating equity in higher ed through our support of the PhD project. Organization is near and dear to both of our hearts. I'm also focused on elevating equity in K-12 education by serving on the board of our Birmingham Education Foundation. I'm also doing similar work in affordable housing. I serve on the board of commissioners of the Birmingham Housing Authority. Oh, and then I also serve on the board of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. So I'm focused on elevating equity through civil and human rights. So having elevating equity as the central connecting theme through all of the work that I do in my day job and then through my civic activities, helps me be a lot more efficient in how I deploy my time, my thought, and my resources. And that helps me understand what things I need to say no to. Because if it's not really going to move the needle on elevating equity, and it's not kind of related to some of these things, it's probably not something that's for me right now. 
And I totally agree with that. And I'm glad that you didn't say no. Thank you so much, Dr. Hood, for joining me in the guest chair today to talk about corporate DEI initiatives. You have left our listeners with so much useful information and a greater understanding of what we can do and how we can do this work in corporate America to be much more effective. My brother, I wish you continued success in all that you do. Thank you, Oscar. I wish you success with this podcast. I will be remiss if I didn't give you a roll, Todd. We'll talk soon. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Diversity Matters. If you enjoyed our show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our show, post, talk about, and reshare our show with all of your friends and family, and leave us a favorable review and rating so that it will make it easier for others to find us wherever they listen to podcasts. We cannot do this important work or keep it going without you, so we really appreciate your support. We especially like to thank our episode sponsor, First Horizon Bank. You can find more information on their website by visiting www.firsthorizon.com. If you or your company would like to sponsor a Diversity Matters episode, please visit the podcast section of our website at www.whconsultingfirm.com for more information. Diversity Matters is produced by WH Consulting, a firm that provides a wide range of management consulting and professional services to individuals and organizations. Original music produced by Sincere Morton Murray. Until next time, peace and love.